to Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White. I'm Hardy White. Join me now as we listen together. Really listen. And maybe we'll hear something. Really hear something. About a story. Really story here. Together. Are you ready? Time to light a fire and relax. Sip a hot drink. Oh, friends, this is a Christmas tradition like no other. Join me now as we gather around a virtual fire raging in the fireplace and sit on our settees, our feet firmly planted on three layers of rugs, all of them made in exotic countries, and we sit here in each other's company and listen to my annual telling of Hardy White's classic Christmas tale, The Man Who Ate Christmas. And it all begins on that little shop over on Maxwell Street. You know the one. It's a bakery now, but it didn't used to be. It used to be a shoemaker's. And when it was, a man wandered in there one day with a ticket. And he walked up to the clerk and he said, I brought a pair of shoes in here to be repaired years and years ago. Why, it must have been at least 20 years ago because my wife was still alive. And she's gone now. And when I was looking through some drawers recently, I found this old ticket and I thought it would be a lark to bring it in. It'd be a lark if that place was still there. If the place was still there, I'll bring the ticket in and see if the shoes are. And so he handed it to the clerk and the clerk said, I'm going to look. I'll go in the back. We've been here that long. Yeah. So the clerk went in the back and looked around. And a few moments later, he came back, and he said, Yep, we have your shoes, and they'll be ready next Thursday. But it isn't a shoe shop anymore. Oh, no, that next Thursday came and went, and it was many things. It was a consignment clothing store for a while, and you could go in there and buy the skirts and dresses of the rich. And then they would get the money or their estate would get the money. You could buy their jewelry or their used compacts. You know, compacts with no powder left in it. I suppose you could put your own powder in there. <laughs> but it isn't that anymore. It's a quaint little bakery. And it's called Bakey Yum or Bakey Yum Yum or Yum Yum Bakery. Such is the sign. It's a circular one. So no one knows where the beginning of the name is. They just sort of say the words. But they make baked goods, and oh, come Christmas time, they make a big deal of it. <gasps> they make something that they call Christmas. To describe it would be to ruin it, you know, it's just a few blocks from the big department store, Spanthrifts, you know the one, Spanthrifts, they have the big display with Santa Claus and his thrones and the 
many thrones of his assistants and the overlords of Christmas. You know the ones that sit in those red chairs, shiny red chairs that look something like a cross between minimalist art and the hood of a Corvette. Impossibly shiny. What's it represent, though? What is Spendthrifts really trying to say with this over-the-top Christmas display? You know, it used to be smaller. But then, so was the store. So I guess it's always been the same percentage of the store when Spendthrifts was just three floors with an open area in the middle, kind of the Wanamaker's design. You could look down like a courtyard. And there was an organ that played so that when you shopped, you could hear organ music and it felt like a church. I may be shopping. I may be spending money, but it feels holy. It feels like I'm elevating my spirit and soul. Even though I, what is that smell? The smell of a department store. Now, some of us aren't old enough to know what a department store smelled like in the 30s or 40s, but I know that I've spoken to people in the 70s and 80s who know there was a sort of chemical odor to things, that it must have been something to do with the synthetic fabrics and materials that were emanating a certain gas. And the gas had a distinctive smell, and the smell was the smell of an anchor store at a mall. But the bakery didn't smell like that. No, the bakery smelled like a child's fantasy. Bubblegum and freedom and gasoline and other things associated with children. And every Christmas... They would make Christmas. But one evening, the door opened with the familiar tink, tink, tinkle, tink, 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 a tink of the doorbell, and in came a dapper looking gentleman. He wore a hat, two sizes too large for his head, but just the right size for the top of his head. His coat was made of a sort of material that looked like it was fuzzy, but not really fuzzy, that kind of fake fuzzy that animals' the skin is really bumpy look. His shoes. His shoes were boots, and then they were shoes again, and then they were boots. Something magical was going on. This gentleman was no ordinary dapper-looking gentleman, and that beard was so recognizable. It was the beard of a Santa or a religious extremist. And he was not betraying which one it was today. He wanted to be seen, I suppose, as an ordinary grandpa, there to get some yum-yum rolls or some tummy dumplings. Take them to the grandkids. Feed them to the birds. Well, he stood there, and he looked around, and he said, I understand that this is the greatest bakery in the neighborhood. That's what they tell us, said the clerk. 
You know, even though you're down the street from Spendthrift's department store, which, I understand, has their own bakery department and has for many decades, and they also are known for a dish that they named after a holiday. What holiday is that, sir? Well, it's not Christmas. You're the only one who makes Christmas. And he looked in the display case at the fabulous food spectacular sculpture. Is it a sculpture? Is it perhaps something more like a altar? Is this an offering? The man looked at it as if he were trying to not betray the familiarity of the scene. What's this? What's this in your display case? The clerk looked very proud. That, sir, is something that we call Christmas. Christmas, you don't say, said the dapper gentleman, and he started to drool and, and something into his beard. Oh, it wasn't very pleasant. I don't think he was being sick. There's an idea that he was had been holding something in his mouth, like a milkshake, and he was just starting to let it out. But that's who knows why things happen, especially in stories. Sometimes we will read a part of a book and say, why is that detail there? Is that something that really advances the story, or is that something that maybe the writer just saw in their head? You know, if you were writing something that was purported to be real. You may write down details that don't really tell you anything. For instance, I'm called to the scene of a car crash, and I go there and I tell you there's a green car, and it's a Chevrolet, and it's crashed into a red car, and it's a Ford, and there's three people involved in the accident. Two of them were in the green car. One of them was in the red car. The mother of the person in the green car is the stepdad of the person in the first car. The surgeon looks down at the occupant and says, I cannot operate upon this person because that person is me, but from another time. This is the paradox of the accident. So when I give you those details, not everything means anything. But I may be telling you something that is irrelevant to the story. It's misleading. You say, isn't that a red heroine? or heron, or heron, or herring? Which is it? If you don't know the difference between heroin, heron, and a herring, please do not come into my deli. When the man looked at the display case and got the explanation that he wanted, he nodded to the clerk and said, Oh, I have made a terrible mistake. I came here for Yum Yum Bond Nubbits thing for my grandchildren, but I have made a terrible error in that I have forgotten my billfold. Sir, my billfold, I have left it home with my money in it. Therefore, I cannot pay you right now. You can use advanced electronic internet banking, sir, if you would like. Oh, no, 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 ha, 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 ho, ho. I am too old and backward for that sort of thing. I will just bop on home and get my billfold from the nook that I keep it in near the entranceway to my apartment building, which is very close 
to here. It's rent controlled because you're, you're wondering because you're looking down at my shoes and saying, you don't live in this neighborhood. I do. And it's rent controlled. The man left. Ding, 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 bling, ding, ding. The clerk went about his business and began to wipe off the counter and thought no more of his encounter with the strange dapper gentleman. Well, evening came and the clerk locked up the shop and went on his way home. He too lived in the neighborhood, but in a palatial apartment that he inherited from his grandfather, a man named Oscar Madison, who once was a great sports writer for a great paper and had amassed a fortune and was able to afford a Manhattan apartment that had seven bedrooms and seven bathrooms, and in every seventh bathroom was a seven-layer cabinet, and in every seventh cubby of every seventh layer he kept something very special. It was a book, a book of recipes, of recipes that told you how to make a certain confection, a certain dish that elevated everyone to the level of religious master who would eat of it. It was a recipe for Christmas. Well, that night, a very strange thing happened. At about 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning, the lights flickered, and there was a definite rumble, a definite earthquake, an earthquake in New York City. Did I even mention we were in New York City? You said something about a Manhattan apartment. I did. But where's, is there a Maxwell Street? Yes, there is. So it could have been that, but that's not what I was talking about. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm not. Don't go looking for the bakery. Everyone was startled, but thought no more of it and went back to sleep. The next morning, though, something was a little different. The clerk of the bakery opened up his store. Bling, ding, bling, ding, 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 ping, ding, and entered as he did every morning. He went straight to the counter and put his keys down, and he wiped his face off a little bit, spit onto the floor, as was his custom, scratched himself in all the private areas that he would need to, since once everything started, once the customers came in, you could not scratch your privates or scratch your butt. It just doesn't look good, even if you have a glove on. You could have a gloved hand, a tripled gloved hand. Put it in your pants, scratch things that you need to because, gosh, you know, just for whatever natural reasons, things get sweaty and itchy. Pull it out, take all the gloves off, put three fresh ones on, and people still wouldn't want you to touch their food. That's how strange people are when it comes to the psychology of scratching and itching and touching and then touching food. But let me tell you, all food has been touched by things that are unimaginable. There was an experiment done by scientists, and they shrunk a submarine down to the size of one of those miniature microscopic submarines from science fiction, and they injected it into a pie. And the little tiny micronauts got out and inspected the surface of the pie, and it was just like the moon, and there were things living there. Oh, you could see all the strange uh, creatures what had lived on the surface of the pie. And all of them had little tiny televisions. Little tiny televisions. Oh, watching No Time for Sergeants. 
They were. They were watching. No time for sergeants with Andy Griffith on the surface of the pie. It's just like the moon landing. That information affected people, and it didn't. From that point on, everyone washed their food just a little more. But nobody, nobody wanted to wash their pie. And so no amount of vigilance or doing the right thing or telling people what was expected of them would get them to wash pie. And so they forgot the information they'd learned. They forgot that there was an entire world that they could not see. Much like Wharton Hears a Who. Wharton Hears a Who was an experimental film made in the 1950s by, I think, a Polish director right after the war. And it's really a bit of an allegory for people who were made uh, homeless and were made uh, refugees from World War II in Europe and who are now very tiny who people who live on a speck of dust on a sentient speaking elephant's behind or I don't know his nose or something. This kind of idea of the universe as being recursive and uh, of relative size so that there's ever diminishing, ever smaller worlds, just like in uh, Gulliver's Travels. And then we have maybe larger and larger worlds so that who knows what our very planet could be Something a child's toy or a race of giants. We don't know. The clerk got out his crossword puzzle because people didn't come in right away, which is strange for a bakery because that's sort of an early morning business and people usually are lined up waiting for the doors to open to get their early coffee or their early bun-bun or whatever they have to have. It could be a croissant, it could be a pain au chocolat, it could be a go-glunk. If you have a coffee shop and you have a little section for bakery items, it is often suggested that you include at least two items that are nonsensically named. Perhaps they look like something we all understand. We all know that's a pommier or elephant's ear or something like that. But then you could give it an absurd name. And you should. And you should name it something. It could just be phonetically fun. It can be a pam-pam. And no one will know. You say, well, that's not the one that you're familiar with. This is not what you think it is. This is not creme brulee. This is creme catalan. It's regional. It's different. Similar, but different. In the recipe book that the clerk had at home, there wasn't just a recipe for Christmas. No, there were other recipes as well. Some of them very strange. One of them was merely the directions on a box of junket, which is a commercial rennet dessert. You just boil it or something like that and then solidify it in the fridge and then sprinkle some nutmeg or something else on top of it and serve it as a dessert. But really, it's just the lining of a cow's stomach mm, disguised as dessert. That was in there. So it wasn't just remarkable things. It was also ordinary things, a book of ordinary recipes in a rich person's apartment. What is a four-letter word for God? The clerk looked down, looked up again, 
looked outside, looked at the empty display window, back at his crossword puzzle. The empty display window? It was gone. Christmas was gone. He was the only one working yesterday, so it wasn't like Kim came in later and made a sale and didn't note it down. In fact, if you had sold Christmas, there's a special bell you ring. Heck, there's a special button you push that announces it over the entire internet. The whole website changes. There's a big party. A man literally comes out of the wall, a large one. Bobo, who's worked for the family for years. He's huge. And most of the time, he's kept in a a sedated state in a gas cloud. But when the time is right, when Christmas is sold, he comes out and he does a dance. But Christmas hasn't been sold. It's just gone. But, But it didn't make any sense. The clerk thought for a minute. He remembers locking up. He remembers it was here when he left. He remembers talking to the quaint old man, and that was the last person he saw. Did he look in the case afterwards? He's so used to seeing it, maybe it wasn't there when he left. Then he thought about the earthquake. The earthquake, that's right. And he looked into the case a little more closely. Maybe Christmas has just fallen over. That's it. It's collapsed under its own weight because there was that strange earthquake in the middle of the night, but it hadn't. It was gone. Every trace of it. Christmas was gone. And so he did what anybody would do in that situation. He called the special secret society police. There's a special secret society of bakers who live beneath the streets, who are summoned when a special bell is rung. Oh, there's so many special bells in the city. You hear them all the time. What is... They're all summoning special secret societies who come up from their subterranean lairs, their hideouts beneath the sidewalks, through the steam vents up through the strange doors that open up. Sometimes they will do what I call a a reverse Maxwell Smart, and they will pop up into a phone booth. But they're all coming from below. And they hear themselves being summoned We need you, society of secret bakers who dwell beneath the streets. Someone has taken something that did not belong to them. Something special that was made out of love, that was made to express joy, something that was for everyone. And it was taken by this, we think it's Santa. We think Santa did. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Why would Santa steal Christmas? I'm going to take you back. To a time before Christmas, before it was anything religious or anything like that, Christmas itself, and this is going to come as a bit of a shock, and I mean nothing disrespectful or sacrilegious, is millions and millions and millions of years old. It is a cel- complete with the Santa Claus is too. How can that be? Because the thing that you think of as now And the recent past is actually the dark and distant past. 
So it's really not that Christmas is so old. It's that you are. Oh, my friends, you are ancient. You have no idea. You've been gone so long now. Have I? I'm living my life. No, you lived your life millions of years ago. This is a strange recording or simulation of your life. Bless you, bless you, bless you. Isn't that fun? That's why it seems like a dream. Oh, it can be more vivid than this, but somebody stole Christmas. They ran down the street with it, maybe, or put it in their coat. If they were wearing a sort of coat that looked like fur, but really it was an animal's strange skin, it was Santa. The baker knew what to do. He rang a second bell, which the Underground Society of Bakers understood was a bell that indicated that the person they were looking for was, in fact, a popular mythological figure. Five letters. Well, why not just tell them? Why give it to them in a form of a crossword puzzle code? Because that's the way we do it in war. That's the way we do it when there's adversarial things going on. Stuff has to be in code, don't you understand? So you have to say to somebody, you won't say, I love you. You'd say, four-letter word for affection. Four-letter. You wouldn't say wetter. You'd say letter. Four-letter word for affection. They'd say love. They'd figure out love on their own. These Christmas readings. Are you done? I'm not done. This is still the book. What do you mean still the book? I'm still literally reading from the page here. This is all written down period. He looked up from the script he was reading. There was a display very much like the bakery in his own room. He had built it from memory. He'd gone to visit the shop on Maxwell Street, and when he did, he made a mental map of all of it. He, in his head, remembered, constructed a three-dimensional diagram of this place so that when he got home, he could build one. He could build the window display where they kept Christmas. And that's what he did. That's what the writer did when they wrote this story. And maybe, just maybe, that's what the man dressed as Santa Claus did when he entered that shop with his hat that was two sizes, too different than his head, either small or large, but not, definitely not the same size. Again, either hat is too small or big. At the same time, how magical. Paradoxes exist for these mythical characters. They come in and out of reality for us. They look like ghosts sometimes. We interpret that as being transparent. You're there, you're not there. You're there, you're not there. You're see-through, but you're not really see-through. It's just a mixture. It's just, I can't explain it because I'm not a scientist, nor am I a storyteller. And every Christmas, we like to turn on the radio and hear something that isn't a story because you have been basically deluged with them. Oh, they come from right and left. There is a company that normally makes greeting cards, but they also insist on make 
making movies based on the greeting cards, which is tremendous arrogance and hubris. Can you imagine our, oh, wishing you well on this special day card is so profound, we can make a two-hour movie of it, complete with a soap opera star. But that's what they do, and they make a disproportional one about Christmas. Why? Why would a card company make a good... Wait a minute, Christmas cards! The clerk stopped and thought for a moment. Did I have that man sign our Christmas card? Because if I did, we have his signature. And if we have his signature, even if he wrote down a false name, we've got something. The clerk took out the oversized comic Christmas card that the bakery shop kept in the back room. Let's see. There it is. Chris Kangle. That makes sense. The large cap he was wearing was a Kangle cap. I thought he looked sort of like an 80s rapper. That's what it was. Well, wait a minute. I don't know if that's really Santa Claus. The baker went to the library in the sub-basement of the bakery and started to look up Chris Kangle, but he couldn't find anything. That must be a pseudonym. Who is this mystery person? Why would they want to steal Christmas. That is chapter one of The Man Who Ate Christmas. It is a popular tale that we like to tell on this radio station. We like to tell, you know, we read, they do a reading every year. It's some people do a Christmas carol or something like that. And um, I'm... I'm ghost one. Oh, I'd do it with all the ghosts are a different stooge. Right? Spread out. I'm Christmas past. I think that's how it goes. And then Christmas future is Joe Besser. That's why it's so sad. And then he, or Shemp or something. Shemp pushes him into a grave at the end. But this reading, it's a little bit different. Because the man who ate Christmas was written at a time in our culture, in our country's history, when we didn't have a lot of radio dramas or what they call poor theater, but for radio. We're used to regular theater having dimensions. Sometimes there's elaborate sets, right? We'll go and um, if you see something like, oh God, what's a play? Charlie's Aunt. Or... Lend me a tenor. A play like that. You, they might have sets. So there, there's a door. And they'll make a door or something too. And, um, and there's a table. And they're all sitting around a kitchen table and everything like that. So they'll have sets. Now there's other theater. And this is post-war Polish. There's, it's poor theater. There's nothing there. And you know about that because Andre went on and on about it. And I'm going on and on about it. So we have that here, but this is radio theater, but with no sets. So no Foley. Nothing to give you a clue when it is or where you are. Can I have some mood music? No. 
What's the mood? Not going to tell you. Are you in a fire? If you are, um, do up some paper. I'm reading this. First of all, I just grabbed some paper, but I got to look at it first to make sure there's no, nothing important on it. There's no... There's your fire. There's your crackling fire. Is that what you wanted? You disgust me. No, you don't disgust me. I'm, I'm being silly. Oh, no, not at all. You know what? Some things, though, that are wonderful are disgusting. It's dosage. Like when you're making Christmas cookies, you realize that. Or, or, or latkes. It's dosage. So vanilla extract. A whole shot, just doing shots of it. Blah. No, but just a little tiny bit in something can be good. And the same with uh, a, a latke. Let's say, um, what would you want to put in it? A little chopped onion. What's too much? Don't put carrots. Some people put all sorts of things in it and muck it up. How do you ruin one? Oh, you can ruin it. They're easy to ruin if you put like, something that's not traditional in it, like raisins. Raisins? I never, no one has done that. That'd be wonderful to do to screw with somebody. Come over for my traditional latkes, and then you put, you go, you want the raisins ones, or I've got ones with pecans. Oh, that'd be, see, that's like a practical joke. Nobody gets hurt, but it's horrifying on some level for some people. I'd like to, that's the best way to do is to outrage people with bad food combinations or, um, architecture that's um you know not just ill-conceived something short of that uninspired architecture i think that's hilarious to me it is i don't know maybe people don't share that kind of worldview and i understand that and i am in a unique position now of being able to have the airwaves here especially around the holidays, and I know how many people can be lonely, and I'm just reminding you that other people, what do you need them for? Let's say, oh, I hear your voice, Hardy, and I realize that my solitude is a gift. I think I'm going to go shut the radio off now and go uh, emphasize it. I recently took a bath. I don't usually take a bath, but I had, I had been exercising or something, and I thought, I'm going to take a nice warm bath. And I got in it, and one of the first thoughts I had is about the people that take ice baths and what a terrible mood I would then be in. I can't imagine how violent and angry I would be if I was uh, had to sit in ice. But the hot water, boy, that made me feel very ironically chill. I was very relaxed. I thought this is just like being in Japan or something. I wish I was floating in an onsen. And all my cares floated away, and I thought, you know what? Maybe everything, maybe this life is not so bad. I thought for a brief moment in my hot bath, and and, and that was probably true in that in that one moment. Now, how do I capture it? How can I set that moment in amber? Could I? Well, maybe if I died in that instant, it would somehow become eternal. But even then, I'm not so sure. Well, one of the ways is that I could embed it in a story. That's a sort of parasitic way of 
ensuring that it lives. Because stories are like viruses in a way. They survive people, in fact. Are they alive? Yes, they are clearly alive. Just because they can't live on their own outside of a host doesn't mean they're not alive. We've got lots of stuff like that floating around that are alive that we don't think are because somebody might die, uh, but it survives them because it's in a bunch of other organisms that resides there. It could be a fully formed character. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's an idea, a history, a whole, a whole history wrapped up in a story, completely made up. But it survives. It's the eternal thing, not people. And it also gives us the illusion that we go on longer than we do, that we were here before we were born somehow, and that we'll be here after we're gone. That's the illusion it creates. But that's just not true. You are just a instant like that. The thing that's doing the talking, the riding, the storytelling. It's the thing that lives here in Weird World. It's just riding on you. Oh, I'm the host. I'm your host. You're a host. You're a host. We're hosts. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, 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 ha. We're the host. Ha, ha, ha. A host, a host. A dope, da, da. Everything's a virus. Ha, 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 ha. This is the laughy... Um, Thoughts or Viruses song that I learned as a kid coming up for the holidays. Not everybody celebrates the same holidays. And so uh, we would do that, that fun song. At school they would say, anybody who's not one of the major religions, is it your holiday too? And then we'd go home and we would put together very, very elaborate theologies of whatever our religion was. We'd make something up. And then we come in and give a presentation to the class about it. You know, this is this is one of the holy things that we hold things in. It looks like a Tupperware. It's not a Tupperware. It's special. It's like a kiddish cup, but it's just a square it's Tupperware. It's not a Tupperware. It looks like that. But anything, it can be made of anything. It can be made of wood. This one's made of Tupperware. This one's made of Tupperware, but it doesn't have to be. Just like you can make a kiddish cup. Out of Sculpey, if you want. It won't work. It won't work, but, like, you have to do something at Hebrew school for a whole hour. Oh, you know, there's so many, this time of year, I'd like to point out that not all Hanukkah. What's a Hanukkah? Hanukkah is an, is an eight-candle uh, menorah. So a, a menorah is a candle, a Jewish candle holder with seven candles normally. If you were in the temple, doesn't exist anymore. I said if. And then the eight one is a Hanukkah is for Hanukkah, and that extra one's called a shamish. What's that mean? You can look it up. I'm not going to say helper, <laughs> just like helper, like how helper in the same way like we when we abolished helpers during the Civil War. So anyway, that little candle. Uh, so it's eight and people make them children make them at their religious schools sometimes and they'll make them out of wood and and nuts not nut edible nuts I mean like hardware you know and then you put the candle in the in the nut you can make them out of sculpey like I said you can make them out of uh, 
anything metallurgy i guess glass some some schools have glass blowing that's fun you can make Oh, that's fun to do. Can you? Some Hebrew schools have something called Judaica glass blowing, and you can make all that. That's really fun. I don't know if all churches have that too. So we're just going to make church things. You can make a crucifix. Sculpey is very obvious, but what are some things, Hardy, where you can make? You can make a, you can make a crucifix with like your old GI Joes or whatever. Just be creative. You get a cross, get an old tire iron and strap G.I. Joe to it. You have your own church. And there's lots of, you can make religious symbols or just they're all around us. Really, I believe. And that's a beautiful thing. Is it? I don't know. I don't know. Finish the story. There was a man named Raspberry who uh, worked at Spendthrifts. And Raspberry was the head of sales. I don't know what that means because everything is sales at a retail store. But he wasn't the head of the store. The head of the store was young Mr. Spendthrift. Is that from Are You Being Served? That is not from Are You Being Served. He was young. Oh, young Mr. Spendthrift, Mr. Raspberry. Those are the two characters. I just watched the Nicolas Cage movie where the name of the character pops up when they are on the screen so that you can remember who they are. And it's so great because I get so confused. But because this is a movie made by an older person for older people, I thought that was lovely. That's like wearing name tags at church. Oh, liberating. It's so liberating. Let's do this next FMU marathon. Everywhere we're a damn name tag. There's no shame in it. Because it's just so f wonderful to be able to say somebody's name. And you forget, you know, especially if you're meeting a lot of people or something like that. It's just a suggestion. I've been to places where, where they, in churches and temples and <coughs> synagogues and everything, where they do that. And it really is, a, I think it's a lovely thing. Because some of us have a problem with names or faces or... I have a problem where I'm, I have this, oh, I have a problem being interested in other people's lives. And so, going on, it's hard to focus in parties and stuff. I'm just kidding. I am and I'm not. It depends who you are, bless you. Oh, I'm probably interested in your life. But who knows? I could be. Oh, my goodness. Finish the story. Mr. Raspberry is down there at Spendthrifts. He hears the alarm go off because his father used to be one of the secret society bakers and used to live beneath the streets. In fact, he would clean up. All the corridors there that they have to run between to do all their kind of duties because they do a lot of surreptitious little duties down there. They have a library, like I mentioned before. Every bakery has a reference library so they can look things up. How do you think they figure out some of these cake designs? It's like tattoo parlors. Tattoo parlors have corpses in the basement of tattooed people that they can go reference. And this has been done for years and years. And they go down there and they just they uh, roll them over and everything. They look at them, see how it's done, go, hmm, ideas. And it's for the newbies to practice on, too. So it's, it's wonderful. I donated. I'm donating myself to a tattoo parlor when I die so they can practice on me. And I think there's a little window there where you, that could be possible. Raspberry comes running out of the building. Why does he come running out of the building? Because he knows that this is 
something that has been foretold. You see, about a week before that, he received a postcard in the mail. It had a picture on it. It had a picture of a man that you might recognize. He had a long white beard and a kangle cap that was the wrong size for his head. And the writing on the postcard writing side, where the writing is, where they put your address, but then you also put the things that you want to say right there next to your address that everybody can read. Right there it said, the time has come. The man who ate Christmas is here. Oh, he knew what that meant. He didn't know when it would happen exactly, but he knew, and he especially knew at 3 a.m. that morning when the walls shook, when the floors shook, the bright explosion of light outside, he knew what that meant. They'd come for Christmas. They'd come for the greatest expression of human joy. Not the holiday. The thing in the the giant cookie or whatever it is, in the big cake or cookie, what do you imagine it to be? At the end of the story, they always ask, what do you imagine that thing was in the display window that's called Christmas? Was it a big cookie? Was it a big cake? Was it elaborate? I imagine it had all these uh, sugary, stringy things. It was a big sculpture. It was a town. Maybe it was a big town made in confection with sugar. And sugar, stringy sugar things, and taffy, and toffee, two different things. Is it? It really is. That's amazing, but it really is. Um, Taffy and toffee are not only two different things, but they're also Welsh brothers. And uh, I went to school with both of them. You, that's so silly. I love telling, that's the old style of telling jokes. Like it really happened to you. I told it, did you ever tell a joke that was such so unfunny people think it's just a lie? That happens to me on parties all the time now. I'll think something's an exaggeration. They'll say, tell me more about your Santa Claus job. And I go, oh, I was just kidding. I hate to deceive people. I want to and I don't, you know? Like I have this dream of moving to New York City an opening, are you reading the book? Maybe. Maybe this is in the book. <laughs> I have a dream of moving to New York City and opening acting schools. Well, just one to begin with. And it's for kids. For kids to come and learn acting. Now you say, you're a charlatan. This is terrible. People are going to spend money. These poor, trusting little kids think they're going to learn skills. Well, you know what? That is unacceptable to me. I would never trick somebody. So what will happen is that will motivate me to go out and really learn how to do it, to really learn acting. I'm going to devote myself. I'll go out. I'll read books. I'll be taking classes ahead of them. You know, I'll be out that night real late taking the classes so I can get there the next morning and meet them and then pass on whatever wisdom I've learned. And then I'd encourage them. I'd encourage them to all work on each other's projects so they'd, you know, figure out what it feels like to contribute to something, but also to lead projects so they'd know what it was like to to lead people as well as to follow, to work on something collectively. That's what I would teach them at my little acting class. Yeah, right. Like, 
that's going to happen to me. Like I'm going to just waltz into a bakery and eat Christmas and all of a sudden I'm going to get all my dreams. Yeah. Raspberry ran towards the bakery because he knew where it was going to happen. And he was too late, of course. All he saw was the clerk there with his jaw dropped onto the floor, staring at the empty space in the display, <laughs> display window, excuse me, where that had been, the bin had been, where the thing had been before. I'm going to go ahead and take a little sip of this. I'm sorry. That's not how it's done normally. Can you imagine getting a book on tape and there's just, there's the narrator has a coughing fit and then goes, just, just a minute, I'm going to get this lozenger. I wouldn't mind that at all. I don't mind that. I hate fakery or fakeness. And books on tape, if I did them, would be hours and hours long. They are. That's what's going on now. If you could see how short this story is on paper, it's like a post-it note that, said, that just says, Man, who ate Christmas. No, it doesn't, because you... How do you know? I'll tell you how I know. Because when you were saying the name... Of the story, you hesitated like you were thinking it up on the spot. So I can tell when you've thought of something ahead of time and when you're thinking about on the spot because you hesitate. You'll be like, it's called the Manu. No, you fell for it. That's the old pretending to lie hesitancy thing. Yeah, I'm uh, an accountant. Yeah, that kind of thing. That's what I was doing. I knew I was going to call it the man hates, hates Christmas or whatever. I knew I was going to call it Eight Christmas. Eight Christmases, the Eight Christmases. I found out something interesting uh, this week that I wanted to share with you that I think is important enough to interrupt everything else that I'm saying. McHale's Navy. Now, I don't know if you're probably so young that you don't know this show, but it was a comedy. There was some war, there's been war comedies in our history, and this was one. It was about World War II. I believe it aired... Probably we were actively in a military conflict when it was airing. Which is, oh, that's interesting. And it was a sitcom, and it starred uh, Boris Bagnine, uh, that's not his name, Ernest Borgnine, and Tim Conway, and Joe Flynn. But the pilot for the sitcom was in a comedy. It was a two-hour serious drama about World War II in the Pacific. And then by the time I got on TV, it was a comedy. Now, I want you to go figure that out. Because I get mail all the time. Bless you so much. Oh, it warms my heart. I get all, all this mail. Say, Hardy, I have questions for you. Then there'll be all these long questions. But they'll say, one of the things, is this a comedy or drama or what's going on? Explain the show to me, is the one I get all the time. Explain this, what's going on? Tell me what about the show. Tell me, what is it? What category is it? What genre is it? What, what, what are you even trying to say? And this is, what I, this, is, this is the answer that I give. Here's a funny thing. No one's ever asked me that, ever, in 20-some years. 30 years or whatever. That's so funny. I wonder what I would say. Huh. I'd say, uh, I don't know. 
I go, what is it to you? Oh, maybe I'd say it like that. What is it to you? I could say it two different ways. I could say toffee, taffy, like that. They wouldn't know what I was talking about. You do, though. Oh, are you here for a feeling? Are you here for a feeling? You're not here to learn anything, are you? That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. And I like to learn things because I like to have something to say at a cocktail party. And I find that the best thing to say are one of these did you know kind of things. Because my personal life is uninteresting. But the best thing you're at a party and say, oh, zero, man. what did you, what'd you, uh, what'd you do this week? And I go, oh, I, uh, I discovered an interesting thing about Mikhail's Navy. Did you know? Or something like that. That's what I'll do. So I'll just come up with a trivia thing. Once that's spent, I got to leave the party, but I'm usually the timing is perfect. You know, go in, you, you know, that Hardy's always got a funny story or some, he's something interesting. Yeah, yeah, he's always got something he's been reading about or something. Yeah, yeah, and you always learn a little something. Yeah, yeah. Those are my friends. Do you have friends? No, I don't have any friends. Sorry, I'm lonely. Most people say that. It's true. And they're probably right. You might have friends that people think, there's lopsided friends relationships where you think you're friends. They might not know your friends. I always think that about my friends. I go, do they know they're my friends? Do they think I have more friends than I do? You always wonder that. You know, they, you know I know that they don't come over very often, but they come over more than everybody else. So do they know that? People need to get their status from you. I'm going to do that. I might do that today. I'm like, hey, I'm going to, I need to let you know your, your rankings. Because I think some of you got it a little wrong. I think some of you are lieutenants who think you're privates. And I just wanted to, you know, let you know that you're a little higher up on the the uh, pecking order there. And I'd love you to come over and peck at some fresh baked goods that I just got down from that old place on Maxwell Street that used to be the shoe repair place. Yeah, I heard that joke. I heard that on Paul Harvey, the one about they'll be ready next Thursday. He was a radio fellow back there in the day. And um, my gosh, when I was young, radio, they had so many personalities, all different, every kind of different old white man than you can imagine. Just, just I imagine they're all different heights, too. Different heights. Just didn't close your eyes and picture a lot of mid-century white men, but different heights. Some of them very tiny, maybe. Maybe some of them are large. You know, they all sound large, you know. This is the microphone man, and... And you just, they'd lull you to sleep at night, all these voices of old-timey radio. Now, before that, all the people talking alone are, are were a lot of were gentlemen. But um, the early days of radio, the women's voices are better um, because Baby Snooks, first of all, you know, Eve Arden. Um, I could go in. I'm a bit of a... Are you a radio buff? No, I'm not. I'm going to have to go on Wikipedia right now and look at some names so I can say them like I've been thinking about them. I had, though, a little bit. I care about my craft somewhat. You wonder if people that have food trucks are home, like, watching cooking videos. Like, I just want to get things a little bit better. Not that their standards lose. A lot of times their food is better than somebody in a, a Michelin star kitchen. Now, are they going home and working on something? Like, I, you know what? I know I just worked it like a 14-hour day, but I'm going to go home and kind of and work on my peeling skills a little bit. I'm going to peel something. I'm going to peel 
radish. Maybe I'll peel a radish. Peel a peel a turnip. Or blanch. Do some blanching. Go home and blanch. I might. You don't know. You know, do a I would like to do sous vide cookies. So you get the cookie dough and you put it in a bag. Well, a lot of you sell sell weed and everything. You might have these bags where you can vacuum seal them. You go, and then throw that in the boiling water and you wait till it's a cookie. You don't need an oven. Another thing is you have an air fryer. You can use that to make shrunken heads if it's a big enough one. They were popular. You could get people's dead people's shrunken heads, I think, in the Florida Turnpike when I was a kid. Uh, I don't know whose they were. I think prisoners. It's hard to, back then, everything was so different. It was brutal, a little, little brutal. But now it's a, it's a little more gentle, I think. And I know that you're, you're thinking about, did, is that, resolve the story. The man who came in and ate Christmas didn't because it's not possible. You can't eat something that's in the heart like that. You could eat a heart. You could eat a person's heart, but not his feelings. They're because they're not even there. You'd have to eat the brain. Then you've eaten their feelings, but not the heart. That's an old timey misconception. Oh, bless you. I hope I brought a smile to your face a little bit. No, I'm weirded out. That's if you're even if you're grinning an uncomfortable grin. I'll take that one. I'll take the open mic stand-up uh, nervous laugh. You know what people do? I've seen people get wonderful laughs at open mics because we're all terrified. So that's maybe I'm doing that to you. That would be wonderful. Oh, bless you. I can't believe you listened to me. Why would you listen to me? Why would you do that? If you're still around, you say, well, I've done it. Now I'm, I'm committed. So I'm going to say I like it. Because I listen to the whole thing. I don't want to be humiliated. Do you have to stick up for me sometimes? You go, I have to stick up for people, find out I like Hardy White. I get in a lot of trouble. No, it just means you you got love in your heart and uh, kindness and gentleness uh, in your soul. And um, you just uh, you long for uh, tenderness in others and uh, sort of uh, giving yourself up. In that wonderful way that makes you feel like you're part of something when you're with beautiful people with tender hearts like that. And I feel like we do that when we meet together. It's a little bit of letting go. You know, the burden of being you uh, dissipates a little bit. You don't have to be 100% you. You can be a bunch of people. And that's what I want to offer to you is that. I'm going to liberate by dissipating a little bit. Don't have to be, uh, you know, Super you all the time. Yeah, just be nobody with me. Kick around here like Baloo and Belinda from Jungle uh, uh, Gentle Book. And, um, and that's fine. Oh, my goodness. You are listening to Miracle Nutrition, WFMU, East Orange, WMFU, Mount Hope, 91.9 in Rockland County, in New York City, New York, and online at WFMU.org Worldwide. Freeform Radio, the way it was formed freely and the way it shall die free. Oh, my friends, thank you. And I am so blessed that we could be together, and I will see you again next week.
Twice. Now come relax. 